Thank you, Ben and Ben and Amanda and Barb, for helping us worship this morning. Uh, it's always great to worship God in song, and now we have an opportunity to worship God by listening. Now, before we get into our uh, message this morning, I do want to just remind us that, uh, well, first of all, let me tell you that the message this morning is not going to be a Palm Sunday message, okay? Um, we're, we're continuing in our sermon series on preaching messages that have already been preached, all right? Um, preached by people like the Apostle Peter so far. That's who we've been hearing messages from um, in the pages of Scripture. But I want to set our tone for the week that is before us by reminding us that this is indeed an important day. Palm Sunday is an important day in the history of the world, in the history of mankind, because it is the day that our Savior Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to the chants and the cries of Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those chants, Hosanna, to the King, uh, is a reminder to us that Jesus is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords, and we have an opportunity before us to let him be the King of our lives. Now, please understand that Jesus is not the King of this world, okay? It's not, that's not what it is right now, because he's not ruling, he's not reigning, he's not on the throne of David, but he has every right to be the King of my life and the king of your life. Now let me also throw in a little side note here. I don't say that he's the king of my heart because there's a theological difference between being king in my heart and being king of my life. Okay, King of my heart means that he doesn't have a kingdom that he's going to literally rule in, but he's just ruling in my heart. King of my life means he's ruling in my life now and there's going to come a time when he physically, literally rules from the throne of David. Let me share... Uh, some words to a song that might help us as we work through this week. This week, if you have time, uh, take the time to each day read about and, and meditate on what happened each day of the Passion Week in the life of Christ. And because of the Passion Week and the death and the burial and the resurrection, Jesus can indeed be our God, my God personally. Here's the words to the song. It says like the, It goes like this. <clears throat> they were like prisons that we couldn't escape, but he came and he died and he rose. Those walls are rubble now. Remember those giants we called death and grave? They were like mountains that stood in our way, but he came and he died and he rose. Those giants are dead now. This is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. This is our God. This is what he does. He saves us. Remember that fear that took our breath away. Faith so weak that we could barely pray. But he heard every word, every whisper. This is the king we're talking about, okay? King, king Jesus, if you will. Never once did he fail. Never, never ever will he fail. This is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. This is our God. This is what he does. He saved us. Who pulled me out of that pit? He did. Who paid for all of our sin? Nobody but Jesus. Who rescued me from that grave? Yahweh. Yahweh. 
who gets the glory and the praise? Nobody but Jesus. This is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. This is our God. This is what he does. He saves us. He bore this cross, beat the grave, let heaven and earth proclaim, this is our God, King Jesus. He bore the cross, he beat the grave, let heaven and earth proclaim, this is our God, King Jesus. Can I ask you a question this morning as we think about this Passion Week that is uh, before us? We're beginning it today and we're going to go on throughout the rest of the week. And it's going to end with the celebration of Jesus victoriously defeating death in the grave. But is Jesus the king of your life? Have you let him have that place that he so rightly deserves um, that we are reminded of on the celebration of Palm Sunday? Let's pray and ask God to bless our time together in his word, and then we're going to dive right in to Acts chapters 4 and 5. Yes, I did say 4 and 5. Okay. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we are so thankful uh, again for another opportunity to open up your book. Uh, Father, this is the book that you wrote for mankind. You inspired it, you breathed it out for our benefit and for our well being and for our information, so we can process the, the words that are in your book and live in a way that honors you. Father, help us to do that this morning as we look at the text. Help us to um, understand that you have given us your word and you expect us to read it, study it, and apply it to our lives on a daily basis. Help us to be faithful to the text this morning as we look at it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, don't despair. We're not going to try and look at every verse in the chapter. We're going to concentrate on verses 11 through 26 of chapter 4 and then verses 26 through 32 of chapter 5. So as we begin this morning, I want to remind you that so far we have looked at two sermons that Peter has preached to Jewish people. And please understand that there's nothing that you need to draw from that racially or culturally or anything like that. But preaching to the Jewish people in these two sermons makes absolutely complete sense. Uh, and Paul would have agreed with that because remember what he said over in Romans chapter 1, verse 16? He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And you know the last phrase of that line? To the... Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile, okay? So it was God's plan to offer the gospel first of all to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Remember Paul's habit, Paul's, if you want to call it a tradition, every time he went into a new city, where did he go first? He went to the synagogue. He went to where the Jews were gathering and he preached his heart out so that the Jewish people might come to know Jesus as their Savior. However, almost every time the Jews did what? They rejected the gospel. Why? Because they rejected the King, the, the, the Messiah. They rejected Jesus. And not surprisingly, because that was part of God's plan. God said that they would be not his people. And, and every time they hear the gospel nationally as a, as a nation, as a group of people, they turn away from it. They reject it. 
And then there's those words in Habakkuk that you will be my people again. There will come a time when the Jews will again be the focus of the people of God. But at this point, they're not. And all of us should be happy because that means the door is open for us to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, to the Greek, to you and I. You and I have the privilege of hearing the the, the gospel because the Jews rejected the gospel. You see, this first sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, it was primarily to the Jews, to those who had come back to Jerusalem to uh, remember and celebrate the day of Pentecost. They were there in droves, and thousands of people got saved on that day. He challenged his listeners with the truth of what message? The gospel message. The message that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ hung on a cross. You crucified him. You put him to death. And God had other plans. Death could not keep him. The grave could not hold him. He rose again on the third day. Hallelujah, praise God, and Jesus is alive. Seen by hundreds and hundreds of people authenticating the fact that he was dead on a cross. They took his body down and they put it in a tomb, hoping to never see it again. But that didn't happen. Because in eternity past, God said, my son would die on a cross and pay for the sins of mankind and be raised from the dead and author and find, be the founder of the church of Jesus Christ. So Peter preached that message. He preached his heart out and he blamed the Jews. He put the blame for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ squarely on their shoulders. And don't go, phew, glad I wasn't there because we were there as well. We were part of the reason that Jesus was nailed to a cross and wore that crown of thorns and suffered and bled and died so that we also might be welcomed into the family of God. He gave them the truth of the gospel. And in that very first message that he preached, he also explained to them and gave them the hope of the resurrection something that we will focus our attention on next week, and we will take a break from this particular series, and we will focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this second sermon that we looked at last week, Peter preached again to the Jews, and he reminded them that they were the children of the covenants that God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he was indeed their Messiah, The God, that Jesus, God in the flesh, was the one who came to complete those covenants, to to fulfill them to the very letter, to the very T. And he called for the Jews to repent for rejecting the Messiah. He called for them to accept Jesus as their Messiah. He gave them the hope that it wasn't too late to receive Jesus as their Messiah. Now let me remind you of an important truth that I mentioned last week. That truth was the fact that God never intended to replace the Jewish nation with the church. Because if he did, this would have been the place to do it. He would have said through the Apostle Peter, Okay, Jews, you messed up. You blew it. You had your chance. God is done with you. He's finished and you're on your own now. 
He didn't say that. In fact, he didn't say it here, and it's not said in any other place in Scripture. God is not done with the Jewish people. God will again be their God. God will nationally revive them and bring them back to the land and and fulfill all of the promises that are yet unfulfilled. That is going to happen. The church has not replaced Israel. Do you understand that? Do you know that? And most importantly, do you believe that? The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the the tool that God is using and working through right now. The church is not Israel. You say, Pastor, what's the big deal? Can I tell you this? If the church replaces Israel, then God's really not who he says he is. That's how important it is. Because he couldn't keep the promises made to Israel, he had to substitute somebody else in there. No, our God is the God, he says he is. He made promises, literal, geographical, locational promises to the nation of Israel that have not yet been fulfilled, but they will be fulfilled absolutely, completely as they were made to Abraham. Thank you, Ben for teaching us the things that we need to know about the Israelite people on Sunday nights. So we will see the location promises that were made to them, to the Jewish people. They are a literal people. They were made a literal geographical promise. The boundaries were clearly drawn by none other than God himself. And so God is going to give that track of land to the people of Israel, completely and and fully. There will not be one little tiny piece that is missing. It will all be theirs, with Jesus sitting on the throne and ruling and reigning. That, my friends, is how important it is to understand eschatology. Our covenant friends have it all wrong, or most of it anyway. Don't fall into uh, being tricked or deceived, or, 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 or said, hey, you, you should believe differently. How could you believe something so silly as what you believe? Because it is the truth. It is the truth. God is working with the Gentile people right now. He's called it his church. It's the bride of Christ. And, and people have said to me, Pastor, how do you know God's not done with the church? Well, because we're still here. The very moment he's done with the church, there's going to be this trumpet that sounds. And there's going to be the descending of Jesus in the clouds. And he's going to say, come home with me and be with me. And we're going to be caught up in the air. And we're going to go to heaven. And we're going to live with him. And we're going to be actually the bride of Christ. And then we're going to come back with him and we're going to reign with him on this earth as he rules and reigns from the throne of David. I I, I mean, this is exciting stuff, my friends. And yes, you you can say, Pastor, are you passionate about it? You better believe because it's our future. It's our blessed hope. What did Paul tell Timothy in in Titus 2.13? Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. We're going home with him. We're coming back with him. And for all of eternity, we're going to be with our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. That's right. And none of that was in here. Okay? 
That's all extra for you this morning. But I want you to understand just how important it is that the Jewish nation be the Jewish nation and the church be the church. Yes, there's a little bit of overlap. There were Gentile people that proselytized into Judaism. And there are Jewish individuals who realize and understand that Jesus was the Messiah, is the Messiah, and are born again today and part of the church. But nationally speaking, that is not the case. Now let me reel us back in. You should be reeling me back in. Pastor, let's get back to the text, okay? That's where we're going to be, uh, Acts chapter 4. You might be asking, Pastor, if he's not preaching to Jewish people necessarily, if he's not preaching to the church, who then is Peter preaching to? Well, he's preaching to a tough crowd this morning, okay? He's preaching to the priests of the day. He's preaching to the members of the Sanhedrin. He's preaching to Pharisees and Sadducees. He's preaching to people who should have known the truth and should have been living by the truth. Last Sunday night we were at a or last Friday night we were at a pastors and wives fellowship up in Memphis, and, and at our table we were talking about um, people who have former pastors in their congregations. Okay. Um, and uh, one pastor said, well, the pastor of the church that I'm pastoring now is still in our church. And he said, sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes that's hard. And somebody else said, well, that's the case for me too. And I said, well, I have a pastor in my church, but he's not, he's not the former pastor, and I really appreciate having him with us. And so we're talking about how sometimes it's very challenging to preach Two people when there's other pastors in the room. One of the most difficult sermons I ever preached was when uh, Jim Lytle came to our church in South Africa. Uh, he, was, he preached at family camp, and then I preached on the Sunday morning, and I was like, wow, here's Dr. Lytle. Dr. Lytle is sitting in the congregation. I have to preach to Dr. Lytle. And you know what? It didn't matter. I mean, yes, I was a little extra nervous um, because he was my teacher on how to do a lot of that stuff, but... God was the one who was most important in preaching that message. So I remained true to the text like I was taught. Okay, So it doesn't matter who's in the congregation, but Peter's preaching to the big deals, the big wigs, the big shots, if you will. And these are the guys who actually were responsible for putting Jesus to death. Wow. Tough crowd. You, you think it's tough to preach um, your first message. Be thankful it's not your third message to that crowd. Okay, so Peter is preaching to the priests. We pick up the text. Well, let me tell you, first of all, as we get into, into, into chapter 4, verse 1, Peter and John are arrested. Okay, you might say, well, why were they arrested? Well, they were arrested for what they did in chapter 3 when he preached that other message, when he healed that lame man, and the lame man got up and he started jumping up and down and dancing around and giving praise and glory to Jesus. Okay, Peter and John were now arrested because of that. And they're going to have to now appear before the Sanhedrin to give an account of what they did. Chapter 4, verse 1, tells us that Peter and the other apostles continued to preach in the temple area to bring the truth to these people who were imprisoned by falsehood or inappropriate, inaccurate teaching from the Word of God. The last week we titled the message, Triumph in the Temple. This week we're going to see trouble in the temple and who's in trouble the apostles are in trouble why are the apostles in trouble because they're preaching truth can i tell you this sometimes the truth gets you in trouble 
Don't despair. Don't say, well, that's not fair. Whoever said life was going to be fair? I've read through the New Testament many times. I've never found anything there that says being a Christian is going to be fair. It's not there. Okay? God never said it would be fair. In fact, he said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. They weren't fair to Jesus, were they? They hung him on a cross. Call that fair? The perfect, spotless Lamb of God hung on a cross. How is that fair? It's not fair. We've had it, and I'll say it, we've had it pretty easy in this country for most of our lives. Generation after generation after generation of American has been able to live their life honoring the Lord without very many repercussions. Been pretty easy. We don't know how long that's going to continue to go on, or if it's going to continue to go on. But remember this, we must stand for and in the truth, no matter what. That's what got Peter and the other apostles thrown into the temple, or thrown into prison, because they stood for and preached and taught the truth of the word of God. Verses 1 through 3 is where the trouble begins. All the apostles were busy teaching and preaching. Specifically, they were preaching and teaching about the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to do that next week. This made a particular group of religious people very unhappy. This group is, of course, the Sadducees. Now, I may have told you before how they got their name. They don't believe in the resurrection, so they are sad, you see. That's not how they got their name, but it is true. They are very, very sad in more ways than one. Because without the resurrection, there is no hope. And without the resurrection, and without believing in it, they don't have the truth. They can't bring the truth. They can't preach the hope that we have. So indeed, they are sad. Because they never, ever believed and never will be, believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus is, was dead, he's now alive, he proved the resurrection. So these guys have an agenda. We have to discredit Jesus and any teaching about him because it goes against what we have crafted in our belief system. You see, false teaching goes astray. And when you start believing that which is false, you lose the hope of the gospel message. These Sadducees and these priests and the captain of the temple came upon the apostles. They came after them in an aggressive manner to force them to do something. And we see in this case they were forcing them into prison. They were going to arrest them. They were going to throw them in jail. And we see that as this is taking place, what's happening well, the number of people that are believing in the gospel message is growing. We are now going from 3,000 to 5,000. Isn't it incredible that we see here in the pages of Scripture that that which causes incredible growth in the church is faithfulness to the truth of God's Word? No gimmicks, no programs. Nothing special going on. We just have 12 men who are preaching the truth. 
day after day after day after day, the truth is causing people to come to a right relationship with God. We used to have people come into our church in South Africa and sit down and hear the message preached and, and, and then come up to me after and say, Pastor, never heard the truth preached that way. Never heard the, the truth in, in such a clear way. I've, I've been in church all my life and my church never preached that stuff. Why not? I don't know why your church didn't preach it, but I preach it because that's the mandate from God. To preach the truth in season and out of season. When it's easy, when it's hard, we preach the truth. And when we preach the truth, God gives the increase. Whether it's 10 people or 10,000 people, we leave that in God's hands. We let him determine the size of the body. We just preach the truth. Let's get into the first thought here in, in verses 4 through or verses 5 through 12 this morning, and we have a showdown with the Sanhedrin. This first session is an appearance of Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, and in that session, Peter addresses a direct question. Um, In fact, it's a charge that is leveled against him and John. Here's the question. The, the, The priests are asking this question now. By what power or by what name... And and that's not a coincidence as they use that phrase. By what name have you done this? Have we done what? Now, they knew what they were being charged with, and they knew why they were being charged. What did they do? They they, They healed this lame man at the temple gate. They brought vitality and vigor back to his body so that he could walk and jump and dance and give credit to Jehovah God, to Jesus. Now, we want to take note of Peter's response here. First of all, I want you to see that Peter does not answer from his own perspective. Scripture is very clear here. It tells us that he was filled with what? Filled with the Holy Spirit that indwelled him. And I appreciate what the Nelson Study Bible says about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me read it for you. It says, Luke uses the common term to describe how the Holy Spirit, listen, influences a person. He uses the expression, Luke uses the expression, filled with the Holy Spirit eight times in his writing. So in in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, Luke uses that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, eight times. He uses it to show how the Holy Spirit enables the person so endowed to speak or preach for God. Thus, the filling of the Spirit is directly related to the prophetic ministry, the revelation or explanation of God's Word. And by prophetic ministry, I mean the speaking forth of God's Word. Or the the writer of the Nelson Study Bible means the speaking forth of God's Word. Proclaiming it to others. How do we do that? Because the Holy Spirit lives within us. We have to be allowing the Holy Spirit to influence us, to control us, if you will, to be bold to proclaim the good news. So in this showdown with the Sanhedrin, we're going to see that Peter addresses the accusation. He addresses the charge. What name, by what power are you doing these things? And Peter expresses their authority. He says here to them, we do this in the name of Jesus. 
You want to know what our authority is? Our authority is none other than the Messiah, than Jesus, the Son of God. Boy, those are fighting words when you're talking to the Sanhedrin. They don't want to hear those things. But Peter is speaking the truth. He's setting a great example for us. We must speak the truth. Again, we see Peter's talking about the name of Jesus. He credits the name of Jesus as being the reason for which this lame man is able to to get up and walk around and jump up and down and, and be healed. We also see that he's acting in the authority that Jesus gave in the Great Commission. Remember what he said over there in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20? He's called the people together and he said, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. What do we do with that authority? He says, Go! Or in your going, as you're going, make disciples. Preach them. Preach to them the things that I've taught you, the things that you've seen in me. Teach them. Baptize them in my name. The authority is the name of Jesus. Not his own authority. He wasn't building his own kingdom. We talked about that last week. If he was on his own, he could have said, look at at me, look at what I'm doing. But no, he's pointing people to who? To Jesus. He's saying, this is Jesus. Jesus is doing this, not me. And then he turns the table on the Sadducees and on the Sanhedrin. And the priests, he actually makes an accusation against them. He was being accused falsely of something. And so now he says, here's the truth. Here's what's really going on. He says, this Jesus is the stone that that was rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. Wow. You put him to death and God had other plans. God has him as the chief cornerstone. The the, the whole thing on which this whole movement is built is none other than Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Peter would refer to Jesus as the stone or the chief cornerstone. This does two things. Okay. The first thing it does is he clears up the idea, the confusion that And Peter didn't probably have any idea about this, but he knew that there would be a problem down through the... Holy Spirit knew there would be a problem down through the ages. So Peter clears up any confusion that might come from the Matthew 16 passage like we know has come up in uh, some churches today. Some churches out there say that Peter is the stone. Peter is the rock. Peter sets it straight here. He says, the stone is the one that you crucified. He's the one that you put to death. The chief cornerstone on which the church is built is none other than Jesus Christ. He's the founder. He's the builder. And Peter knew that it wasn't him. It wasn't about him at all. Peter knew his, fra- his frailty. Peter knew his humanity. Peter knew his sinfulness. And he knew that God couldn't build a church on him. The church had to be built on Jesus Christ. Remember the question? Who do men say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Peter, because flesh and blood didn't show this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this significant life-changing truth to you. A life-changing truth that is going to run down through generation after generation after generation of the church that Jesus is building. It's not about Peter. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. He is the author and the founder of our faith. 
Secondly, from the very beginning, Peter wants it to be clear that the church is powered, not just founded by Jesus, but it's powered by Jesus. His reference here to the stone would have been well understood by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the council members of the Sanhedrin, those who were part of the priestly class. At least they should have understood the terminology. It was used throughout the Old Testament. Job chapter 38, verse 6, you can look it up and read it. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Psalm 118, verse 22. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 7, all talk about the stone. And you know who the stone is in every case? The Messiah. Jesus. Again, a reference from the Nelson Study Bible says this, Peter used the phrase to point out that when the people rejected Jesus Christ, they rejected the one who completed the plan of God for humankind. Wow. What a mistake they made by rejecting the Messiah. And people are still doing it today. We tell them about Jesus, and what do they say? Oh, I don't need Jesus. I believe in God. Well, if you believe in God, you better believe in Jesus, because they're one and the same. If you reject Jesus, then in reality, you're rejecting God. That's the truth. That's the fact. So Peter moves on. Not only does he make an accusation against them, but he also states an absolute. Now, I understand the world in which we live is not all wrapped up in absolutes like it once was. We've, we've seen all the way from the 1970s, maybe even before that, maybe back to the 60s, where there's been this tearing down of the absolutes that we so clearly and dearly hold to. Not only the absolutes of Scripture, but the absolutes of our history of our nation. And I'm not going to get into it, but there's, the, the, the world in which we live does not want absolutes. And you know why? Because if there are absolutes, you have to live by those absolutes or deal with the consequences, Right? So Peter states an absolute here. He says, and we'll find it in verse 12 of chapter 4, there's only one name for salvation. Remember when a particular president stood up in a world stage and he says, there's many roads to God. There's not many roads to God. There's one. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can get to the Father without going through Jesus Christ. And can I tell you this? Allah doesn't get you there. Joseph Smith and his Mormonism doesn't get you there. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't get you there. And I'm sorry, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't get you there either. The only thing that gets you, and you know what? Here's another truth. Calvary Baptist Church doesn't get you there. Jesus Christ gets you there. And that's why it's so important that we maintain the integrity of the office or the pulpit, if you want to call it, whatever you want to say. We maintain that truth be preached from anybody who stands up here behind this desk. And if it's not, we bear that responsibility. And I don't want that responsibility. I don't want to have to stand before God and have him ask me, why did you let so-and-so stand up there and not speak the truth? The truth sets us free. You might say, well, Pastor, you're a little strict. I'd rather be too strict than not strict enough. So Peter states the absolute that only through the name of Jesus Christ 
Can one be rightly related to the Father? Can one be saved? Can one be born again? Well, let's move on. We have support from the saints in verses 23 through 31. Support from the saints. I love this part of the text because the, the, the apostles are coming back to the base, to those who are praying for them and to those who are upholding them before God and, and also out there doing the same thing on a smaller degree. This is not necessarily a preaching session, but it's important nonetheless. We, what we have here is actually a testimony time. It results in glory and praise and honor to God. This session also includes a season of prayer. Why do we do the things we do? Because scripture sets the example. When we say we're going to have a prayer meeting, then we have a prayer meeting. And when we say we're going to have a prayer meeting, can I tell you this? You should be here. Because that's what was the example that was set for us. Okay? So, as they gather together, first of all, we see their report and their requests. Who's the there? Well, it's the apostles. They give their report, and that turns into some requests, and then they pray about it. Right then and right there. They went to their companions, and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. First of all, that report includes trials. We were thrown in prison. We were told we can't preach the name of Jesus. We were told this and we were told that. And we were told that if we keep doing this, we're going to be in trouble. Well, so be it. Let us be in trouble. We're okay with that. So they got the trials. And as soon as, as, soon as these men, the, Peter and John and the apostles, were released from prison, they went straight to their fellow laborers and they told them what had happened. And I can almost see the conversation unfolding. As they poured out their heart to them, they were asking their friends to pray for the situation. Listen, listen, men and women. Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to pray before God and ask him to give us the boldness, ask him to give us the heart, ask him to give us the determination nation to move forward and communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't do it in our own strength. We need God here. So as they as they share this report and they share this request, it breaks out into a prayer meeting. They poured their heart out to 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 the their fellow laborers and they said, "Let's pray. Let's ask God to do a work here." And then it turns into a testimony. Testimony time turned into prayer time. And they prayed. You know what they prayed? Listen to how they prayed. First of all, it says that they acknowledged God for who he is. That's a great way to start praying. God, thank you for being the one true God. Thank you for being the sovereign God of the universe. Thank you for being who you are. They acknowledged who God is. And as, after they had this little praise time about God and worshiping him for who he is, they agreed with God concerning Christ. What did God say about Christ? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He, he, God said when he raised Jesus from the dead and he, and he, and he brought him back to heaven and he let him sit down at, the, at his own right hand, he is saying, I am thankful, I am glorified, I am content with what Christ accomplished on the, on the earth while he was there. I am satisfied. Satisfied, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We must agree with God concerning Jesus Christ. You see, that's where these other religions fall short. We don't need Jesus. Yes, you do. Absolutely need Jesus because there's no other way. And then they affirmed, if you read the text, they affirmed that Jesus' life and death fits exactly what David described hundreds of years earlier. 
It fits the, the, the biblical narrative. It is what God has planned in eternity past. You know, we say that there's this scarlet thread that runs through Scripture. It starts with the shedding of the blood for the animals and the, uh, for the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. And this whole line of the, the, the remission of sin through the blood sacrifices is throughout the whole Scripture. All the way up until we get to Jesus. And he sheds his blood on the cross of Calvary. And that scarlet thread stops there. Because there's no need for any more shedding of blood after that. Because he was the once for all perfect sacrifice planned for by God in eternity past. We must affirm that. We must agree with that. And then the last part of their prayer is they ask God for boldness to continue witnessing for Jesus Christ. And ministering on his behalf. You see we can't do ministry without the power of God in our lives. We must ask God for that boldness and for that power. And then we see the results. Listen to this. You know, people have said to me, Pastor, I don't know what to say. Just tell them about Jesus. That's what you say. When somebody wants to know why you're different, tell them about Jesus. What does that result in? That's the only way a person can get saved. They spoke the word of God with great boldness, and, and people came to know Jesus as their Savior. It's plain to see from this passage that the testimonies and the prayer time are essential for individuals coming to know Jesus as their Savior. When we gather together, we pray. And we've said it before, it's prayer that moves the hand of God, not because of something special about us, but because God loves to hear his children talk to him, whether it's individually or corporately. We pray, God hears, he acts. Prayer caused the church to grow. Prayer caused individuals to come to know Jesus as their Savior. Well, flip over to Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 26. We're going to see the second session with the Sanhedrin, if you will. The second session. Verse 22 gives us the background of the second time Peter preaches to the Sanhedrin. Uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 22, we read this. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, surprise, they found no one. Now, listen, these guards weren't slacking in their responsibility. These guards didn't take a nap. These guards didn't go to Duncan, okay? These guards were on duty doing exactly what they were supposed to do because you know why? If they didn't, they would have been put to death. <laughs> That's a pretty serious thing to have happen. They knew how important their job was. They were guarding this prison like they were supposed to be doing. And, and these apostles had been arrested. They had been put in prison and the guard was set over them. The door was securely shut. In the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and told them to go stand in the temple and speak the words of life to the worshipers. The apostles left prison and did exactly what they were told. What do we see that telling us? That's telling us about the protection and delivering power of God. God watched over them, God delivered them, and then God gave them a, a command. Go preach. Don't go home and, and hide underneath your bed. Go home and preach. Or I mean, go to the temple yard and preach. 
Go do what you're supposed to do. They're preaching up a storm in the temple courtyard and the representatives of the Sanhedrin go to get them out of prison and the prison doors are all locked up just like they're supposed to be. They open the doors and they find nothing. What's going on here? Much to the surprise of the apostles, they're not in prison. Much to their surprise, the apostles are not in prison. Somebody comes running and says, Hey, those guys that you arrested, they're supposed to be in jail? They're not in jail. They're out there preaching. And tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> Can you imagine? We, we used the word gobsmacked before. These guys were gobsmacked. How did they get out there? How did that happen? We can't let that go on. So they go out and, and they say, listen, what are you doing? Didn't we tell you? Didn't we command you? You can't do that? Listen, they said, what didn't you understand about what we told you guys that you can't preach in the name of Jesus. Didn't we strictly tell you to keep quiet about him? Stop talking about him. Look what you've done. You filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and now you're trying to convince the people that we're the ones, the Sanhedrins, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that we're the ones that killed Jesus. We just can't have this going on around here. You need to stop. Guess what? They didn't stop. They kept doing it. They kept preaching. Notice the response of the apostles. First of all, we see that they're committed to doing right. This is where they use that phrase, and you got to love it. We ought to obey God rather than man. We're not going to do what you tell us to do. We're going to do what God tells us to do. Much like the great Israeli leader Joshua, who said, Choose you this day whom you will serve. And he lists a bunch of gods and he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The apostles are saying right here to the men who should have known that verse by heart, without any questions, without any reservations, the apostles were saying, you guys, you can choose who you're going to listen to and who you're going to follow, but we're going to follow God, we're going to follow Jesus, we don't care what you say. We're going to do what is right. They were committed to doing the right thing. We also see that they were convinced of the truth. How do we know that? Because of what they said next. They said, hey, you crucified him, but God raised him up, the one that you murdered by hanging him on a tree. Ooh, he's not pulling any punches, is he? Looking at the guys who are the religious leaders of the day, he said, you hanged Jesus on a tree. You crucified him. We're not listening to you. They were committed to the truth. You see, the council wanted Jesus dead, but God wanted him alive. So he raised him from the dead. Can you stop God from doing what God wants to do? Not a chance. Never. Never going to happen. And then they talk about the centerpiece. Who's the centerpiece? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is the key piece in the gospel and in the building of the church. God the Father not only raised him from the dead, Peter says, but he exalted him. He, he, he raised him up, he, and then he sat him down at his own right hand. You see, the exaltation of Christ is proof that God the Father was pleased with the work of Jesus while he was here on earth. 
And Paul tells us about this same exaltation over in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, Therefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whew! Man, get your blood boiling, doesn't it? These guys are committed and convinced that Jesus is the very heart of the message of the church. We see that there's a cause and effect here as well. There's a reason and a purpose for Jesus coming to earth. And even though the, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, the, 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 the Levite tribe, they all thought that they were the ones who got Jesus out of here because they didn't want him here, it was part of God's plan. What was the plan? Well, the plan was to give repentance or to bring repentance to Israel and to provide them with forgiveness of sin. Jesus has been exalted so that Israel might believe that he is indeed the Messiah. And when they see that he is the Messiah, what, is, what, is that, what should that do in their lives? It should cause them to repent and to be forgiven for rejecting him. And as God promised Abraham that all the world might be blessed through him, not only for the Jews, but also for the Greeks. That's the cause and the effect. And then we see that there's some corroboration going on here. Peter and the other apostles are witnesses to the work, but even more importantly, the Holy Spirit is witness to the truth of the events described. You and I, we must always be working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. We must let the Holy Spirit have its rule, his rule and way in our life. Remember, it's the Holy Spirit that is the agent of conviction. It's the Holy Spirit who works in a man's heart and allows them to see that Jesus is indeed the only way to salvation. A person can't be saved apart from the scriptures and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that the scriptures are true. The, the Holy Spirit gives witness or gave witness to the death and the burial and the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who, con who brought absolute, um, uh, absolute contentment in the gospel message for, for Peter. He would go ahead and move forward preaching and teaching the gospel again and again and again because he was confident that the gospel message was the true message that brought men into a right relationship with Christ and with God. So far we see that Peter is, a, is the main preacher among the apostles, but the other apostles also speak the truth of the gospel. Can I tell you this? There's one preacher here at Calvary Baptist Church for the most part, but my job isn't any more important than yours. We all need to be preaching the truth. We all need to be telling others about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel and only the gospel that can make a difference. Peter takes advantage to expound the word of God as he finds himself in these situations. The King James Study Bible makes this comment. Having yet another golden opportunity to preach Christ and him crucified... Peter falls back upon his pattern of making reference to the slaying of Jesus and the cursed hanging on a tree. Also, his message contains a note of repentance, forgiveness of sin, as well as his repeated claims to be among the witnesses of these very things. What is Peter doing? The truth, the truth, the truth. Used to watch Dragnet. Just the facts, ma'am. 
the truth. All we can do is preach the truth. So far we've seen three messages from Peter. The messages are preached to different audiences, different groups of people, but the content of the message is the same. It's consistent. It's the message that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. God raised him from the dead, and there's a call to repentance and an offer of forgiveness, and then we're called to obey that message. That's the gospel, my friends. The gospel again and again and again. You know what? It never goes out of business. It never goes out of fashion. It never becomes outdated. The gospel is relevant today like it was when Peter preached it for the very first time. Even the religious need to repent. Even the, even the religious need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So again, this morning, I, I've asked you once, but I'm going to ask you one more time. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you're here this morning and there's never been a time in your life where you bowed your heart and your head before Almighty God and confessed your sins, today's the day. Don't put it off. Don't leave without talking to somebody who can help you understand the gospel message. And then be committed this week. It's the Passion. It's the Holy Week. What better week to share the gospel with somebody else? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you again today and thanking you for the privilege of knowing the truth of the gospel. But Father, it's the gospel that made a difference in our lives and not just a short-term dis- difference, but an eternal difference. Father, the gospel allowed us to be rightly related to you through Jesus Christ. We say thank you, knowing that that's not enough, but thank you. And we ask that you'd help us this week to live for you in a way that shows that we believe the gospel and we want others to know it and believe it as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen.